Thank you, Sally. Well, again, it's not a not a easy passage to hear, is it? And uh, as I've said, we're going to be faced with a few of these passages as we go through 1 Corinthians. Last week we saw how the the Corinthian Christians' boasting was causing them to overlook or at least minimise a serious public and blatant sin by one of their respected members. And the Gospel called them to take strong action to deal with that. It was because, we were told, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so those uh, for whom Christ has died were called to celebrate the festival, the Passover festival, in a new way with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, in today's passage, we see that their self-confidence was leading to another ungodly behaviour. They were dealing with much more trivial matters, matters of uh, differences and disputes between one another by going to the civil courts. Now, central to Paul's uh, argument in this passage is uh, this idea of uh, the saints judging the world. The world is to be judged by you. And then in the next verse, do you not know that we are to judge angels? What does he mean by that? This idea is, is at the foundation of the, the reason he gives for how we should settle disputes in a godly way. So we can't just gloss over it. Uh, there's so much behind these statements, right from the very beginning of Genesis through the whole scriptures to the end of Revelation. So we're going to take a whirlwind tour of that idea through the scriptures so that we'll be able to understand why Paul is uh, making this argument. We're told in the creation accounts that human beings were made not merely as one among many creatures, but as the pinnacle of creation, uh, appointed to rule over the other creatures. So Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. This image of God is related to sonship, Knowing God the Father in the same way that God the Son knows the Father. And ruling over creation just as the Son rules over creation with the authority given to him by his Father. Human beings are to be judges over creation. Now we may have a fairly narrow view of or understanding of that word judge because we really only hear it normally in the context of the courts where a judge presides over a trial 
dealing with crimes uh, and disputes. That's something that is necessary in a fallen world, but it, that won't be needed, obviously, in the new creation. There won't be crimes or disputes. Biblically, a judge is more than just someone who presides over a court, as illustrated by the Bible book called Judges, the story of those who ruled over Israel. A judge is more than someone who sentences criminals. They're a a governor, someone who rules both in times of war and of peace. They administer righteousness. They uh, uphold the law for the good of the community. A judge is needed to rule over a society, whether that society is at peace and harmony or divided and at war. Now Israel recognised this high call of human beings in their worship. They gave glory to God because he is glorious and deserving of all worship in and of himself but also there was, as we see in Psalm 8, a, a thankfulness for who he has created us to be and the high position that he has given human beings in creation. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So here's all the, the great things that we see displayed of the glory of God for which we worship him. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Uh, And as we saw from uh, the creation, uh, it's not just talking about male human beings here. Uh, That word man uh, is Adam, which encapsulates all of humanity. Now this psalm is a psalm of David, written by a man who was a king, who was a ruler over God's people. He'd received from God that kingship and he'd received promises of a future king who would establish an everlasting kingdom, who would be from his line. Now the heavenly beings that he mentions here are the angels. In degrees of glory or Proximity to the, uh, the presence of God, angels are above human beings. So we're made a little lower than the heavenly beings in that respect. But this arrangement is only temporary. God's goal for humanity is that we might be glorified to bring us even higher than the angels, even closer to a place where we will behold his glory face to face. Now in our sinfulness, humanity has twisted and corrupted and abused our position as rulers over creation. We've used our dominion to exploit and to destroy and to 
make a name for ourselves, like at the Tower of Babel. And we've done this in order to reject and to overthrow God's mandate to bring blessing to creation through us. That's why so often in the biblical story God's judgment is directed against those in authority. That's why a lot of the history in the Old Testament is the history of the judges and the kings, those with power and authority. In a sense, the abusive authorities in this world are the the cream of the crop, but in a bad way. They're a more explicit indication of what is actually in the heart of every human being, every, everyone who wants to rule but outside of God's rule. Now, in around 600 BC, um, that song shouldn't be there, that will come at the end. Uh, 600 BC, the prophet Daniel was given visions while he was with the exiles or one of the exiles in Babylon. And these visions reinforced this promise of God to send the Messiah, the King. It's from Daniel's prophecies that Jesus drew the title which he frequently used for himself, the Son of Man. So Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." But this vision wasn't only about this one king who would come. Because when this king came, he would also restore all of God's people. As we see a bit later, uh, that's now frozen, Malcolm, I think. Sorry. Hopefully it will pop up in a moment. Uh, He goes on and says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, one of the heavenly beings, the angels, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts, which are earlier in the vision, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So this will be a combined reign. The Son of Man who rules over all things, but the saints will be there by his side, ruling with him. There we are, thanks. This is the, oh yes, a bit further on. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth, the whole whole heaven, sorry, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom 
and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus will have with him all of the saints, all of his people, and we will share that reign with him. The dominions that are mentioned here are both earthly powers and spiritual powers. That's what Paul is referring to in Ephesians when he refers uh, to Jesus' resurrection in Ephesians 1. He, He says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now Jesus told his 12 disciples that they were in effect, sorry, the last bit of that passage, he put all things under his feet, there's Christ, the Son of Man, gave him as head over all things to the church. The church is there with him reigning. Jesus said to his 12 disciples that they were uh, in effect the new heads of this new Israel that he was bringing and forming through his death and resurrection. So in uh, Matthew 19, Peter said in reply, see we've left everything and followed you, what then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And I I believe he's using this term here, twelve tribes of Israel, uh, in a symbolic way to describe the new people of God, the, the saints who will be formed by him from not just Israel but from every tribe and tongue and nation. And this is reflected then in the book of Revelation. John has a vision of the Lord enthroned in heaven. It's remarkably similar to the visions that Daniel had. He says that once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, God the Father. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So here it's 24 thrones representing the saints both from the Old Testament the 12 tribes of Israel and the New Testament, those who have heard the testimony of the 12, the apostles. This is those who throughout history in both Israel and the church who've lived by faith in the true and living God. Then finally in John's vision of the final judgment in Revelation 20, this vision which then leads into a vision of the glorious new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge 
was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be authority structures. All of the saints, you and I, will reign with and in Christ. Christ, our our last Adam, have dominion over all the works of God's hands, including the angels. It will be the Garden of Eden fully realised, filling the earth to every corner of creation and infused with the glory of God and a a fully glorified humanity will know the triune God as he walks with them amongst uh, this new creation. It will also include authority structures among humanity. There will be rulers and authorities and governments in which those whom God has appointed will administer truth and righteousness and peace. Now who will these people be? We don't know exactly. Maybe the twelve will be there. We do know that Jesus taught in one of his parables. It seems that uh, the way that we serve here will somehow shape the way that we serve there. The end of... um, Where are we? Yep, the end of his parable. Not long... Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you have delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of of your master. So this, this servant who has proved faithful uh, with little in this life uh, is given responsibility in the next. Now, there's a lot there to take in. Like I said, a whirlwind tour. There's so much more that could be said on this theme. But I hope we can see that what Paul is referring to here um, uh, sorry, my fault I think when I added all the scriptures to the service I got them in a jumbled order what I think Paul is saying here is that this life is so to speak the training ground for the next Our Father uses all things in this life, including good and bad, to prepare us for the glory to come. But later on we'll see in 2 Corinthians 4 that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, But the things that are unseen are 
eternal. Now it's not really that a, a simplistic thing that what we do in this life works, uh, uh, determines what happens in the next but it's more that this goal that the Father has for us, a goal that we're sure to reach because of his faithfulness to his promises in Christ, that goal is to fill our vision and to shape, therefore, the way that we live now. We're to live consistent with what we are and what we will be, conformed to the image of the Son. So there's a real irony then in the way that the Corinthians were thinking. Their boasting in men, their boasting in themselves, was it was worldly thinking because they thought that status and privilege could be attained by worldly standards, uh, monetary wealth, uh, business success, personal charisma, oratory skills, intellectual wisdom, showy spirituality. And so they claimed to be rulers, they claimed to be rich, to be kings. They claimed to have all they wanted but it was empty because their foundation for that claim was in themselves. In fact, it was not just empty, it was idolatrous. But all of this boasting had obscured for them the reality that in Christ and by Christ's merits alone the saints are rich. We do have everything we need. We are rulers. We have this glorious destiny planned and set before us by the Father from before creation. It's secured in Christ and by the work of the Spirit. But in order to see it, to embrace it, we must become weak. We must become little children. We must enter the kingdom not by power but by repentance and faith. Two actions that display a complete dependence upon and submission to our King. We must see that just as Jesus' reign as King was displayed in humble service, so too must our reigning with Him be displayed in service. Our greatness in the Kingdom of God is measured by whether we are a servant to all. So all of that is foundational to what Paul says to these Corinthians who were taking one another to court to settle their disputes. These weren't matters of criminal activity or public unrepentant sin like the matter that was discussed in chapter 5. They're disputes over probably business or financial deals or any other case that we might normally think of taking to a civil court, maybe such as the matter I mentioned last week where a man wanted his membership back in a club so he went to court to settle the dispute. And we need to be clear that the principles in this passage apply to disputes between Christians. So it's not a prohibition to never go to court to settle a dispute and it's not a prohibition to seek justice when serious harm has been done to a person or that has been done that violates the law of the land. 
These are trivial matters that they had blown up to treat as if they were crucial matters and they were breaking fellowship with one another over them. We should be thankful for a justice system here in Australia that is by and large just and based on principles of truth and justice that come from the Christian worldview. That wasn't the case in first century Rome. Courts then were largely corrupt. They were controlled by the privileged and they were easily swayed by bribery. They weren't so much a means of establishing justice, they were more a tool for the rich and the privileged to get their way over the poor and disadvantaged. And so that's Paul's first criticism. They're going to law before the unrighteous. They were using a system that they knew was corrupt in order to exploit their own brothers and sisters in Christ. God's people should be eager to flee from the corrupt systems that we see in this world, even if that means that we ourselves will be disadvantaged or ostracised by the world. Going against the flow of corruption is by no means an easy thing to do. It's probably why, from our own experience today, that whistleblowers have often taken many, many years before they have the courage to speak up. They know the backlash that will happen. They know the grief it will cause them when they put themselves in a place of opposition against the powerful and influential. Even simply a passive refusal to just go along with the culture can be a battle. It can make us stand out, made to be seen as wowsers or bigots or holier than thou. But God's people are called to be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul's second criticism is that they go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. It's not merely that the courts of the day were corrupt. Even if they weren't corrupt, they would be wrong to go there in preference to seeking to settle their dispute in the context of the church community. The church is the community of the saints, the saints who reign with the Son of Man. We've been given insight into the mysteries of God by the Spirit of God. We've been given the mind of Christ, as we've been seeing. We have the full wisdom of God displayed in the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And as I've been saying, it is the cross that lays the foundation then for wisdom in every area of life. The crucified servant king has set us free from slavery to sin and death and he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. So he is the lens through whom we must view every 
situation we face, every dilemma, every dispute, every decision must be responded to in a cross-shaped way. This is demonstrated in in two ways that Paul brings out here. In verse 5, he says, you should recognise the wisdom that is among you. It takes humility, doesn't it, to go to a person and ask for help. But it also shows great honour to that person to whom you're willing to submit. You're recognising that God is able to use them to be a blessing to you. Do we really believe that we are the recipients of the manifold wisdom of God in Christ? Do we really believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in us and among us? Can we have a confidence that God desires peace and unity in the church more than we do? Secondly, he says, are we willing to suffer loss for the sake of love? What's more important, relationships or personal justice for me? Am I willing, if attempts to resolve the problem have failed, to just leave it, even if it means personal loss to me? We commanded, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So are we willing to forgive in the same way that we have been forgiven? God, in forgiving us, bore in himself on the cross the great cost that our sin incurred. So similarly, if we're to reflect the grace of Jesus Forgiveness and reconciliation with our brothers may well be at great personal cost. Yet what we gain in return is far greater. We gain fellowship, we gain unity in the spirit and we bring glory to Christ. And that's the point that Paul is making in verses 9 to 11. See how this cross-shaped love has literally been displayed towards us. Verses 9 and 10 are often used as a warning. In one sense they are. Uh, We know of occasionally um, and recently people who have got in trouble publicly because they've used this passage in that warning sense. But in this context we also need to see them as a simple statement of fact about our sinfulness in Christ and what has been done in Christ to redeem us from it. See, in to use the terms that Paul was using here, in sinning we have sought to defraud God. We wanted to take from him without thanking him or honouring him. And so we've incurred a great debt towards him, such that all of these sins disqualify us from our inheritance in the kingdom of God. So if we think that our disputes between one another are significant enough to fight and squabble over, 
we need to get them into perspective by seeing the magnitude of the dispute between us and God and to see how he has responded to our defrauding of his glory. See, our sin made us unclean. We deserve to be cast out, to be cast off from God's people. But he washed us. He made us clean by the blood of Christ, by the the water of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Our sin made us unholy, unworthy to come into his holy presence, but he sanctified us through the sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest. And now we have become that holy temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And our sin made us guilty, deserving of the eternal punishment of death. But through the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has justified us. And the Spirit is at work in us now to bring out, to bring about that fruit of justification in a life that's pleasing to him. That's how God dealt with the dispute between us and him. Now we need to be careful that we don't take this as if he's saying because God has done so much for you, you must repay his goodness by doing so much good for him. That's legalism. That's just using a Jesus' death just as a moral example of what we now must do. That's washing the outside of the cup and leaving the inside dirty. It's making an external change in behaviour, but washing, sanctifying, justifying, they're all works that God does from outside, but he does them on the inside. It's his action of washing the inside of the cup. It's a transformation of the heart that will bear the fruit of righteousness, of justice and compassion. So when our sinful external actions become apparent to us and we realise our sinfulness, the solution isn't to say, I'll try harder to do better, but to cry out to him, to say, Lord, please change, please transform, please reform my heart so that the things that I do, so that the way I relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ will be a true reflection of that grace that's at work in me. Let's pray. Father, what a lavish grace you have poured upon us that in the face of our own sin and rebellion and evil you chose to suffer great loss by giving your son who died on that cross in our place Father we will never be able to fathom the depths of the wonder of this grace or to even plunge the depths of your heart of love that caused you to to do that for us yet we know it's such great love.
All we can do, Father, really is receive it and to, uh, to ask you to, that that love and grace might so transform us that we might be truly examples of that love to one another and the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. Let's now sing our final song, uh, which in a way is a, a song of consecration, where we're asking that these, uh, this King, our Redeemer, might uh, take hold of our lives and transform us. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.